0: We open up to the book of Job this morning. There's an old Shakespearean line from the play Hamlet. My words go up, my thoughts stay low, words without thoughts never to heaven go. And how often is it that we are we find ourselves in that place where we're spouting language? Where we're saying religious phraseology, even in our prayers, and it's not really meaning anything. It's not it's not the heart. The reality is We have to get out of that place of the soul. We've talked recently about the body, the soul, and the spirit. These three aspects of who we are. We looked at that in in all three of the post-exilic books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And how they portrayed each one of those elements. Very interesting. But we spend so much of our lives in the soul, in in the intellect, in the reason, in the mind. You know, wanting to think it through and wanting to know the answers and to have understanding and to spout then those things that we've been taught. And the Lord is continuing, at least in this fellowship, He is continuing to say, Come on, come on. He wants to draw us out of the soul and into the spirit. Into that place of real relationship. This is life. And Lord, we need help dealing with life. And God is real, my friends. This is, this is not religion. I, I have, I'm so tired of religion, I don't want it in this barn in my life. I mean, can I hear an amen you do not want religion? <laughs> we want it real. And God would say to us this morning, absolutely, keep it real. Because I'm real. And that's what this is about. It's not about conquering yet another biblical book as we go through. It's not about more intellectual spouting off. My friends, it's about drawing near to the will and purposes of God. It's about walking with our Father. And even in the worst of circumstances, knowing God is there. Well, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Job chapter 1, in verse 1. I'm going to read a little of this passage. We'll come back and really attack it Wednesday night a little further, but I want to give you an introduction, and I'll warn you, about the first half, maybe three-fourths of, of the teaching this morning, it's very intellectual, it's a lot of background, and what's going on, helping us to get get our, our feet on the ground with Job here, but we're not going to end in that place, I promise, we'll end in that place of the heart, and spirit, and where the Lord wants us to be, but I think we need to move through some of this to get there. There was a man in the land of Uz, not Oz, Uz, Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Uz, by the way, was a place uh, probably in Syria, or in the Syrian desert. That's where they believe that was located. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, probably on his birthday. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. What is verse 4 telling us? It's a party family. Verse 5, when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. I don't know if Job was Catholic. But but there's an indication of a sense of needing to to do some penance here for his children. Verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And we'll talk about that theology Wednesday night. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now, and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Father, we come before you just asking again that your spirit be our teacher. That your spirit enlighten us, give us revelation into the things that truly matter. Help us to see into the heart of why you put this book in your great book. And of why you have us here today. In Jesus' name, Amen. His name is Robert Burns. He's known as Scotland's most famous national poet. And it was back in 1788 that he wrote a verse set to an old Scottish folk melody, and whether you realize it or not, you either heard it or sang it this past week. Should old acquaintance be forgot? And never brought to mind, should old acquaintance be forgot and days of old lang syne? and I have sung that song and I have heard that song and every year I wonder what does that song mean? <laughs> old Lang Syne, you know and I finally looked it up love Google
1: <laughs>
0: looked it up and it's, it's an appropriate verse as we begin the book of Job for it simply means old long since days long past the old long ago we are beginning the new year with an old book how old is the book of Job? Well, some try to place it back in the days of the exiles, with Ezra the scribe as the author, which would put it about 2,500 years ago. That's pretty old. But people who believe that also believe that Ezra wrote the book as a fable. didn't really happen, not a legitimate story, not a historical account, but more of a spiritual fable to kind of help people along their walk. Next one, (laughs) people argue that Solomon may have written it because of its poetic framework and the apparent wisdom contained in its words, that would place it at 3,000 years old, even further back. There's some weakness to that argument. You go further, and Jewish tradition believes that it was Moses who wrote the book, also as kind of a a truth tale or a a fable, that would put it at 3,500 years ago. It's so interesting sometimes to read the commentaries and look at how hard people try to make something fit into a theological framework that they started with. Rather than letting Scripture speak. Letting it prove itself to be when it was and and, and what it is. And I believe, because of that, and we're going to share some things, we're going to show you some things this morning, that it's older still. In fact, I think the evidence is heavy on the side of Job being the oldest book in the Bible. (laughs) older than Genesis, written long before the Torah, that this book that we're about to study is the oldest. It's the one that's been around the longest. Conservative scholars place it in the days of the patriarchs. That would be the time of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, at least 4,000 years ago. And they place it there for good reason. Now, it's interesting, if you're studying through the Bible, we saw back in the book of Genesis, those of you who can remember six years ago, long years, you know, old Lang Syne. (laughs) Genesis chapter 10, in verse 29, there is a name listed there among the descendants of Shem, the Shemitic people, and the name is Jobab. And there are those who believe that Jobab is Job. He's one and the same uh, person to whom all these things happen in the book of Job. And that's definitely a possibility. That would place him squarely, that would place the book squarely in Abraham's day, which would be the time that this Jobab, Job, Eob lived. Now as far as the author of the book is concerned, obviously there are those who would say, well, isn't that Job? Because of the first person detail in the writing. And that's that's possible. Um, There's another interesting possibility that I want to throw out to you that I personally lean toward a little bit. There's a young man who appears toward the end of the book. Turn over to Job chapter 32. Job 32. I figure if you're in the book of Job already, finding Job 32 won't be too tough. Comes after 31, before 33. Keep going to the right. Job chapter 32. Watch this. Verse 1. Then these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. We're going to go through this. Three friends of Job who show up to give him comfort and all they do is condemn him. Three idiots who don't know what they're talking about. Now this is interesting and we'll get into this, but just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's the truth of God. What do you mean, Rick? I mean, the Bible tells it like it is. What these men say to Job is not good advice. And you need to understand that going in, and I'll point it out as we go, but you're going to hear different men here speak things, they're going to say things to Job, and they're not right. They're way off. Which is why the whole counsel of the Word of God is important, not picking certain verses or parts out to to fit into your framework. You read the whole book of Job, you come around to verse 32, where you read these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Verse 2, But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Butzite, of the family of Ram, burned. Against Job, his anger burned because he justified himself before God. And his anger burned against his three friends because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. So at this point in the book, suddenly you realize, well, these guys are wrong. They've been wrong the whole book. We're going to spend the next several weeks with three guys who are wrong. And you'll find some truth in it, not in what they're saying, but in the opposite of what they say. But verse 4 says this, Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job, because they were years older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, his anger burned. So Elihu, the son of held the boot spoke out and said, I am young in years, and you are old. Therefore, young people don't say that. By the way, it's an inappropriate thing in our culture and day and age. I'm young in your years, and you are old. Therefore, I was shy and afraid to tell you what I think. I thought age should speak, and increased years should teach wisdom. But it is a spirit in man, and the breath or the spirit of the Almighty gives them understanding. Interesting. Elihu speaks by the spirit of God. That's one of two reasons why I think Elihu is the writer of the book of Job. Because he's the only one in the entire book who speaks by the Spirit of God. Job doesn't. Job is speaking out of his soul. His friends are somewhere between soul and flesh. They are not speaking by the Spirit. They're speaking out of human wisdom. But Peter says, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. 2 Peter 2.20-21. 20 and 21. What this tells us and what I think we learn from Elihu even in these few verses is something we've talked about before. Age is no guarantor of wisdom. Anybody can be an old fool. But the young among us can even be wise if they are speaking by the Spirit of God. This is a truth that we need to understand. In fact, it's something worth praying as we get up in the morning. Lord, help me to speak Your words today and not mine. Because my words are rarely full of wisdom. But his words are always full of wisdom. My words get me into trouble. His word brings the truth to life. First Timothy 4.12 We see a young man, young Timothy, a young pastor who has the Holy Spirit. And Paul says to him, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Well, how can a young man do that? Because he's full of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Spirit who brings wisdom, not the experience of man. 1 Corinthians 2.12, Paul says, We have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. And then Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4.11, great verse, he said, Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. In other words, if you're going to open your mouth and speak for God, you better be speaking by God. By His Spirit. And not by your own understanding. J. Vernon McGee said, I would like to write these words in the chapels of every seminary in this country. Which words? Whoever speaks is to do so as one speaking the utterances of God. For truly there are far too many people out there, pastors, teachers, whatever, who are speaking out of their own minds, out of their own wisdom, rather than just speaking the words of God, which are wisdom and truth. Well, that's what Elihu does. He speaks by the Spirit. Verse 9 goes on and says, He says, "...the abundant in years may not be wise, nor may elders understand justice. So I say, listen to me, I too will tell what I think. Behold, I waited for your words, I listened to your reasonings while you pondered what to say. I even paid close attention to you. Indeed, there was no one who refuted Job, not one of you who answered his words." Do not say we have found wisdom. God will rout him, not man. For he has not arranged his words against me, nor will I reply to him with your arguments. What's Elihu saying? The arguments you guys have been laying out for 31 chapters are lame. It's not wise. It's not wisdom. Now watch this. It says, verse 15, They are dismayed. They no longer answer. Words have failed them. Do you see what just happened? Between verses 14 and 15, he's no longer talking to them, he's talking about them. Okay, He was speaking directly to them, and this is key. This is one of the reasons I believe Elihu probably wrote Job. Because we're getting insight into his thoughts, not his words. Up until now, he's speaking words, but now all of a sudden, and I know there are quotation marks there, but that was added. That's not in the original Hebrew. All of a sudden... They're dismayed. They no longer answer. Words have, words have failed them. Shall I wait because they do not speak? Because they stop and no longer answer? I, I too will share my opinion. I, I will share I will also tell my opinion. I'm full of words. The spirit within me constrains or literally compels me. So all of a sudden he's thinking. We have the thought process of this man Elihu. So you got two possibilities. Either Job was enlightened by the Holy Spirit to know what Elihu was thinking and so jotted that down in his notes... Or Elihu at least co-wrote the book of Job with him and was sharing what he was thinking at that very moment. So he speaks by the Spirit and he shifts to his own thoughts. And for those couple of reasons, I think Elihu is in good standing for an author of this book. Now whether it's Job or Elihu is, is neither here nor there, both may be writing the book together. In fact, we know the book of Job ends with Job dying, so he obviously didn't write that line. But we know this for a fact. The Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit has something to say through this book to us. I want to give you a few more single word characteristics. And you can flip back to chapter 1. A few single word characteristics of Job's era. Uh, of his day. As described here. Because I want you to really understand why we would place the book of Job in the days of the patriarchs. And just hang with me. It's important that we get this. Number 1. Lifespan. Lifespan. Chapter 42, verse 16 tells us that Job lived 140 years beyond his calamities, so that would put him around the 210, 215 year age range, roughly, when Job died. That's important to note because this lifespan of Job is more in keeping with the days of the patriarchs than it is in the days of Moses and following. Abraham we know lived to be 175, Isaac 180, Jacob 147. So for Job to live roughly 200 years would make sense back in the days of the patriarchs when people were living longer, but not in the days after the law was given when people were not living as long. So lifespan is one clue. There there are a number of clues here. That's just one. Secondly, nomads. Nomads. Chapter 1, verses 15 and 17 introduces to two groups of marauding bands who attacked Job's family and his possessions, the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians. Now, if this was in the time of Moses and after, or even the times of the exiles, the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans were settled people. They were not nomads. But here in Job, they are marauding bands. They're nomadic people. The Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, we know historically, were nomadic people in the days of the patriarchs. So that right there points again to this older time frame for the book of Job. Another interesting point is, number three, wealth. The wealth of Job is described this way, verse three. His possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. That's how the patriarchal wealth was typically described. If you read about Abraham's wealth, it was described in terms of sheep and oxen. If you look at Jacob's wealth, it was all the the animals that he had. That's what was seen as wealthy. Not money. That would come as a later sign of wealth. But in the days of the patriarchs, again, this wealth indicates Job lived at that time. Number four. Number four is heirs. Heirs, chapter 42, verse 15, tells us that Job's daughters, along with his sons, received the inheritance. It was divided equally among all of his children. Under the law of Moses, that was not the case. In Moses' day and, and following among the Hebrew people, the daughters did not get the inheritance. The sons alone received the inheritance, and then were to care for the daughters, because they had the inheritance. They were the overseers of what was given to them by the fathers. Except for one exception, and let's guess this first hour, so if anybody knows. Do you remember what the exception is? Right on, Rachel. hads daughters. I know that was on the tip of most of your tongues this morning.
1: <laughs> it's a great story
0: where these daughters of this man named had, there are no sons. And the inheritance is going to be lost. And they go to Moses and say, Look, well, that's, it's not fair. We're going to lose the inheritance. Moses takes it to the Lord. And the Lord says, You give the inheritance to my girls. Because God does care for His daughters as much as His sons. Even more so in Christ Jesus, and I'm going to repeat what Les said last week. The, the one thing, that my, my favorite thing he said through the whole teaching, and by the way, it was long, wasn't it?
1: <laughs> I mean,
0: it was long last Sunday. I thought, when is he going to stop?
1: <laughs> Touche. <laughs>
0: I told Ned, it was Great, I went home and, and he made that comment about me being long-winded. And so I went home and I looked on the little recorder. Fifty-two minutes, baby!
1: <laughs> he
0: said, He said, ladies, you need to know this. In Christ you are sons. If we have to be the bride, you have to be sons. I think that's great. That, that'll preach, my friend. And Paul wrote this to us, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. You know, there's no there's no status other than that we are all his children, all co heirs of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a blessing. If you belong to Christ, Paul says, you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise, sons and daughters. But in Job's day, it was sons and daughters, and that was a sign of the times. Again, the patriarchal period. Number five. Lifespan, nomads, wealth, heirs. Number five, words. There are dozens of words used in the book of Job that aren't used in any other book in the Bible. Any other book in the Hebrew Scriptures. Dozens of ancient Hebrew words. Five different words are used for lions in chapter 4. Six synonyms are used for the word traps in chapter 18. Six words are used for darkness there in chapter 3 and in chapter 10. And these non-repeated words here in the book of Job seem to have passed into Hebrew antiquity by the time Moses comes along and the exiles after that. Words no longer used. They just kind of fall off. Another sign that the writing of Job happened 4,000 years ago in the days of old Lang Syne. Number six, languages. Now this is interesting. Once the people of Israel got settled in the land and Hebrew was obviously the language that they spoke, it was very, very protected. Other languages were not accepted so much. You spoke Hebrew and, and Hebrew was, the, was the, the, the important language to speak. Well, the vocabulary in Job has influences from several ancient languages. It's written in Hebrew, but you see influence all over the place. Akkadian and Arabic and Aramaic and Sumerian and Ugaritic, which I know some of you love to speak today.
1: <laughs>
0: Those of you who are Ugarites, I guess. I don't know. But it's unusual for any Hebrew book to have so much outside influence as the book of Job does language-wise. That's a sixth reason. Number seven, education. Education. These are not brainless idiots in this book, but they are well-educated people. As we go through this, you're going to discover the book of Job deals with subjects ranging from astronomy to geology, hunting, mining, travel, weather, zoology, and even legal terminology, not to mention the fact that it is laced with great sarcasm and satire, which is a sign of high intelligence. More sarcastic, You might say though, okay, well education I would think that would speak to a, a an earlier time or more recent time because aren't we evolving and becoming more intelligent? I think it's just the opposite. We are not as smart as we think we are. We are not so brilliant as we think we are. We can't even do things today that they could do in ancient times. We got geologists and archaeologists still trying to figure out how to build a pyramid. You know? We couldn't build the Temple Mount if we wanted to because we don't have we don't have the machinery necessary to lift stones as big as what are on the base of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Well, how'd they do it? I don't know, must have been pretty smart. They figured out what we can't right now. These were days of impressive intelligence. Don't think just because we're in two thousand and ten that we have all knowledge. We have lost an awful lot of knowledge over the Years that this earth has been here. But Job taught that the earth hung in the heavens and the clouds contained precipitation long before science ever figured that out. Job 26, verse 7, he stretches out the north over empty space and he hangs the earth on nothing. It was after the fact that mankind figured out that the world was flat and the really smart culture said not only flat but balancing on the back of a large turtle I'm not kidding you there was an entire culture that believed that but Job says no the the earth hangs like a ball on nothing and we know that it does we know that now Job knew that then huh he wraps up the waters in his clouds, and the cloud does not burst under them. Precipitation. It was an understood thing in the day of Job. It took time for us to then come back around, figure that out. Job taught the existence of, for us, what would have been legendary creatures. Until archaeologists started to dig up bones and go, What do you think this is?
1: Magnon. That's
0: what that is. What does that mean? I don't know, but it sounded good. Put it in the paper. you know. People digging up stuff for dinosaur bones. Listen to this. Job 40, verse 15. The Lord says, "...Behold now, behemoth, which I made as well as you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold now his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron." Some commentators said, "Well, that's a hippopotamus."
1: <laughs>
0: to which I say, "What hippopotamus has a tail like a cedar?"
1: <laughs>
0: Have you seen the hippopotamus tail? That will little... <laughs> The little thing that all of us wonder, what's it even doing there?
1: You know? Just
0: tail like a cedar. This is something, something interesting. limbs like bars of iron. Young Earth creationists. They believe, and I think they're on to something here, that what he's talking about is the Apatosaurus. Brontosaurus was the old name. Job knew about that. The Lord spoke of this. He said in Job 41, verse 1, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Some said Leviathan. Well, that's a crocodile. A lot bigger than that. In fact, it's probably something along the lines of what's called a Kronosaurus or a giant Sarcosuchus. (laughs) I had to look them up, don't worry about
1: it. Big
0: dinosaur-like crocodiles. Huge creatures that are defined or talked about in the book of Job. And it's very interesting that they would be mentioned and that the Lord would know about them long before we unearthed anything that we could piece together. But whatever these creatures were, the uneducated writer of this ancient book clearly didn't know much, did he? (laughs) No, there is a great deal of education that we see present here in the book of Job. There's one more critical word, though, that, that we need to note to date the, Arab of, the, the era of Job. Number eight is Shaddai. Shaddai. Shaddai in the Hebrew. You've heard El Shaddai, God Almighty. Shaddai, the word, the name Almighty is used more in Job than anywhere else in the entire Old Testament combined. As a matter of fact, 31 times the name Almighty is used to define or describe God in the book of Job. It's only used 17 more, more times in the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures. That's important to note. Important to realize. The book of Job makes something clear. Job chapter 40, verse 2, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? The Lord asked that question. Here's what the book makes clear there's nothing wrong with asking why the problem is when we begin to demand God explain himself you can ask God in your times of heartache and struggle and pain and and lack of understanding you can say Lord why I I don't understand help on this but you cross a line when you start to demand God explain himself you better give answer to me for this I'm angry with you I, I gotta tell you I think I've shared this before it really bothers me when people say well I'm just mad at God right now Okay, um, I'm staying back. You're mad at God? O oh, ye of such greatness? What, are you now almighty? No, He is almighty, and the book makes it absolutely clear. It is arrogance, gang, for us to put ourselves on a par with God and demand He explain Himself to us. To ask why? Okay. To struggle to bring your request before the Lord? Absolutely. Absolutely. But to forget our place in things and to demand an answer of the Lord, it it challenges His sovereignty. He is almighty. And there are things He is doing we know nothing about. I get asked by my kids often, Dad, what are you doing? And I'm in the middle of something. It's like, look, I I could explain it all to you, but it would be easier if you just let me do it. And then when I'm done, you'll see what I'm doing. I love it. We're driving in the car and I make a turn that's, that's unusual and especially with my, my new three special ones. I'll turn a corner and I'll hear,
1: Dad, where are you going? <laughs> oh
0: know what I'm doing. I don't want to explain to them that I missed the turn and I'm turning around to go back and get it.
1: <laughs>
0: the book of Job begs this question. Do we believe that God knows what He's doing? And maybe, from time to time, we need to stop our mouths from flapping and say, wait a minute. This is God. Do I believe that He knows what He's doing? Well, for all these reasons, and actually many more, Job is the old Lang Syne of the Bible. The book of old long since. The oldest book in Scripture. Now, there's a reason I'm pressing this point of the age of Job. Why I want us to push back and see how old it is. God doesn't wait until eons of human history have passed before finally standing up and saying okay I know you guys have had a lot of pain heartache and struggle so I'm going to explain it to you now he begins there that age old question that people ask why must bad things happen to good people and we're still asking it today well guess what God answered it over 4,000 years ago it was one of the first answers that he gave us And then why are we still asking the question? Because we're stupid! Because we're idiots! Because we haven't taken the time to sit down and say, Okay, Lord, you gave an answer in this book. Let's see what it is. Let's start in verse 1, chapter 1, and let's walk it out. And let's see what God's answer is to this issue of human suffering. Bad things happening to good people. And what was Larissa's great sin that caused the horse to kick? She must have done something wrong that morning. She burned the toast. I mean, what was it? You know, had to be something. And, and you know, there's, this is the mentality, even of people today, it certainly was the mentality of people back in Job's day. If you're suffering, you must have sinned. If you're wealthy and things are going well, you must be doing right. Jesus debunks that whole thing. We'll get there in just a minute. But if you've ever heard her ask that question, why Do bad things happen to good people? The Lord responds loud and clear here in the book of Job. It's been called one of the best examples of undeserved suffering. For From the earliest pages of of Scripture, here in this book, the Lord begins to answer. And we see that a good man, Job, must grapple with the pain of human experience. That's another word, if you want to throw that into your list of words, grapple. <laughs> because literally, most of the book is Job and his friends trying to grapple with what's happening to him. Chapters 1 and 2, if you want an outline for the book, chapters 1 and 2 are the prologue. It gives us the history, the historical account of Job and what happens to him. It's just two chapters. And then from the beginning of chapter 3, all the way through chapter 42, verse 6, it's dialogue. Dialogue. It's just talking back and forth, trying to explain this, trying to understand it, trying to get hold of this horrible pain that Job is suffering. Why would God allow it? What have you done wrong? What's the issue here? And back and forth dialogue until verse 6 of chapter 42 and the beginning of verse 7 of chapter 42 to the end of that chapter, the end of the book, is an epilogue of restoration. Prologue two chapters. What, 39 chapters of dialogue and then less than a chapter of epilogue. So this book is about grappling with this issue. Okay, so, so what we're saying then, Rick, is that the book was written to explain human suffering? No. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. In fact, the underlying message of the book of Job is far more significant than the issue of human suffering. I just want you to understand that. And we're going to touch on that and we're going to see some answer for that. But that's not the reason why the book of Job is in the Scriptures. It's not to answer our cry and to explain to us why we hurt and why we suffer. Let me show you a couple more things before we're done here. Jot these down if you're taking notes. In the description of Job, in the opening verses, we see a couple of things about him that are important to note. Number one, Job was a righteous dude. You can write dude if you want or whatever, man. Job was... A righteous man. Verse 1 tells us, he was blameless, he was upright, he was fearing God and turning away from evil. That's pretty stellar. That is a pretty you know, clean moniker there. That, that is a man who pff, the rest of us would look at and go, wow, I wish I could be like that. Blameless. We have struggled. Among the shepherds of this fellowship, there's a list you know, that Paul gives and Timothy and Titus talking about qualifications for being a shepherd. And as we look down that list and we've talked about and prayed about guys coming on and, and, and joining in the leadership, and when you look at the list, every single man, when we come to the word blameless, goes, oops. And so as I share first hour, after second hour, all the shepherds are gonna come forward, we're gonna resign. we're done. <laughs> <laughs> because who can be blameless? Come on. None of us are blameless. Job was blameless and upright. That word upright literally meaning he was a man of great integrity. What he said, he did. His actions and his behavior his behavior and his speech were one and the same. You could count on him. This was a man who was good through and through, a righteous guy. You could stack Job up along guys like Nehemiah or Daniel, Jesus maybe? <laughs> I mean, good men in the Scripture. You can lay them all out there and say Job was one of those. Blameless, upright, fearing God turning away from evil. Verse 2 goes on and says he had seven sons and three daughters and his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. So Job was not only a righteous man, he was a rich man. Very rich man. Clearly blessed in everything he did. Which was a basis for Hebrew theology early on. Blessing equals righteousness. If you're rich, you're good. And if you're poor, you're bad. And it was a faulty theology. We're going on to verse 4. It tells us about his sons, verses 4 and 5, having those parties on their birthdays or on special occasions. They love to party. And they call the sisters. And all the children would get together and they would just party it up. Bad enough that Job felt like he needed to repent for them. He needed to offer burnt offerings for them and sacrifice for them and, and clean up after them. This is the parent who's on his knees as the kids are going out doing things they shouldn't do. A lot of you know what I'm talking about. And praying fervently for his kids to try and cover them. He was concerned for their spiritual welfare. Righteous, a rich man, he was a redeeming father. And for all of this description of Job, righteous, rich, and redeeming, he was chosen for disaster. He was chosen. Job was chosen. Listen, verse 8 says, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered My servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, and blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. And you might say, Lord, why'd you do that? You let the cat out of the bag. Now Satan's going to go gunning for him. Why didn't you just leave well enough alone? Listen, gang. It is the Almighty who invites the suffering of Job. It is God who chose Job for this disaster, not Satan. It is God who laid it out there and said... Have you considered my servant Job? He puts the taunt in front of Satan. God knew what Satan was going to do with that. But you think the Almighty missed it on that one round? He knew what Satan was going to do, how Satan was going to react. Why? Why, Lord, would you do that? Why do you allow good things to happen to bad people? More than that, He didn't just allow bad things to happen to Job. He invited bad things to happen to Job. He might as well sign, seal, and deliver the envelope. Job's pain. Return address. The Lord Almighty. He sets Satan loose to go do this. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, let's answer this with another question. What made us think there were any good people? Where did we ever get the idea that there were good people? Jack Johnson sings in the song Good People. Where'd all the good people go? I've been changing channels. I don't see them on the TV shows. <laughs> Neither do I. Where are the good people? A, ru- a righteous uh, or a ruler questioned Jesus, Luke 18, verse 18, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus' words. Now, Jesus was implicating himself in that statement that he is God. So he deserves to be called a good teacher. But the point remains, no one's good. No one's good. Job, for all his righteousness, was not good any more than you or me. We're people. We're human beings. We need to rid ourselves of the idea that there are any truly good people inherently. And once we've done that, we can get down to the nitty-gritty of Job. There's a far more important issue than good versus bad. Then why does a good man have to go through struggling? Hey, we all, we all literally deserve it. Well, that's not very nice of you to say, Pastor, I'm a pretty righteous man myself. Glad to hear it. You deserve what you get. We need to move away from that whole thinking. The book of Job is far more than an apologetic for why God allows bad things to happen to so-called good people. Here's the real issue of the book, and I need you really to dial in with me on this. Because I think you can misunderstand if you're not listening. The real issue is not good and bad, not justice and injustice. The issue of the book of Job is repentance. Job needed to repent. Let that settle for a minute. Job needed to repent. Well, Rick, now you're sounding like the friends of Job who condemned Job and told him he must have done something wrong and he's got to make it right. That's why all this is happening. That's not what I'm saying. Job needed to repent. Interesting, the Arabic derivative of the name Job, Eob, is to turn back. To turn around. To repent. Now stay with me. Think about this for a moment. Whose story in the Bible would you choose to be the ultimate picture of repentance? Adam? Well, Adam's fall was awful. I mean, you know, sin and death entered the world, man. So, yeah, Adam's repentance, that would be a good place to start. What about Abraham? He lied, had a lack of faith, so he really went down a bad road. And so to see him come back, oh, that's what I need to learn about repentance. Moses had anger issues. Kind of nice to see him getting right with God again after the fact. I think probably the apex what most people would choose would be David. <laughs> the old David and Bathsheba thing, man, he blew it big time. And so we can go to Psalm 51 and we can read about David's repentance and say that's the picture of repentance. Or Peter and his disparaging denials of Jesus. Or Paul after his horrendous harassment of Christians. Those would all be good examples of repentance. And yet God chooses Job to teach us about repentance. He chooses a good man, a righteous man. And that's the whole point. I believe the Lord from early on, from Old Lang Syne, the Lord wanted this most righteous man to be a picture for us in this earliest of messages of the necessity of repentance for all of us. There is none good, no, not one. There is nobody who is exempt from repentance. Okay, but Rick, I'm still hearing you say that Job deserved to be punished. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying Job needed to repent. I'm saying Job was human. And there's only one Shaddai in this story. There's only one Almighty, and that's God. And He is the apex of all things. What I'm saying is this. Listen, he needed to repent. Job needed to turn to God. That's repentance. Well, didn't he do that? Look at verse 1. It says he was blameless, upright, fearing God and turned away from evil. Turning away from evil is not turning to God. Lots of people turn away from evil. They're what we would call in this world the good people. The person who says, I don't need Jesus because I'm a good people. I'm part of that class of people. I have chosen not to do wrong. I care for my fellow man. I'm a philanthropist. I'm involved in, in good acts of good deeds, doing good things for all people. Great, you've turned away from evil, but you have not turned to God. And there's a huge difference. In fact, there's an eternal difference. To turn away from evil, great. The issue of the book of Job is to turn toward God. That's repentance. And that's what Job needed to learn. The question of good and bad came to Jesus in days of tragedy in Luke chapter 13. I'll quickly read this to you. Luke chapter 13. i got to get it in under 52 minutes or I, I lose to less. <laughs> Luke chapter 13 and verse 1 tells us on the same occasion there were some present who reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Tragedy has happened in Galilee. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? (laughs) I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus could have gone on if He was speaking today he'd say, well, do you suppose that the 3,000 people killed when the towers fell some 10 years ago now? Do you think they were worse sinners than anyone else in New York or America for that matter? Of course not. But I tell you, Jesus would say, unless you repent, you also will perish. The issue of repentance is not about how good I can be. I can turn from evil, but unless I turn to Jesus, I have not repented. And Jesus says, you're going to perish unless you turn to me. You can be the best person in the world, but if you don't have a relationship with me, you don't have a chance. You will not be saved. You will not spend eternity in heaven. Unless you truly repent, you turn to me. Well, see, that flies in the face of everything that we're about. We're about work. We're about getting the job done. We're about proving ourselves. We're about showing those around us that we can get to this point where we have cleaned up our lives and we are now holy, good, obedient Christians. And Jesus says, great. Being a holy, good, obedient Christian will not get you into heaven. Have you repented? Have you turned to me? Because for Jesus, the whole issue is, are we in this together? Are you in a relationship with me? Are you inviting me to stand for you and to work for you? To take your punishment for you? Are you with me? Peter said in Acts 3.18, "...the things which God announced beforehand by the mouths of all the prophets, that His Christ would suffer..." He has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that you can feel bad for all the things that you've done and prove how righteous you Oh, that's not what it says. So that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you. That's why you repent. That you might receive the Jesus it's not about recognizing the punishment for our sin, it's about receiving the person of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Job has to get there. The journey that Job takes in this book is, is moving from that place of knowing in his head, but finally receiving in his heart. Now, he, he starts to get there around chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 23 Job says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. They are. (laughs) That with an iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. Okay, these are important words. What is Job saying? As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last He will take His stand on the earth. (laughs) Job is speaking words of prophecy here, gang. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. I know it, I know it, I know it. Yes, Job, you do, in your head. But it hasn't gotten into his heart yet. He's the perfect example of that good, obedient, righteous Christian who knows God up here, but has no relationship with God right here. He's an example of those moments when, like me, last night, praying, speaking words, and realizing, this is religion I'm taught. I need to get back to the reality of what's going on here. And that's what he's invited us to, is the reality of his love and compassion and grace for us. Job is not there yet, but when the book reaches its final conclusion... As the drama unfolds, as God finally answers, and it's awesome what God has to say in a couple of chapters there, He lays everybody out. And finally, finally, Job in in chapter 42, verse 5 says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. What's He saying? I knew you in my head. Now I see you with my heart. I have now I get it. I get it, he says. And so what does he do? Therefore, I retract and I repent. And that is the key word of the book of Job. That's what it's about. This good, righteous, blameless man who needs to repent, to turn to Jesus just like you, just like me. And it doesn't matter who you are, how bad you've been, or how good you think you are. We have some awfully good people sitting in the barn this morning. Congratulations. But you need Jesus. Or you will not get there. When all is said and done here in the book of Job, you will discover it's not about Job at all, but it's about, should I, the Almighty? It is all about Him. Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. Who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your ears with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. Let's pray. Lord, it was just last night that this phrase came, I believe, from You and kind of broke into the religion of my thinking spoke truth to us, Father, and that is that You are the one who redeems us from the pit. And Lord, it's just true. There are a lot of us, even this morning, whose lives are somewhat in the pit or we feel like we're stuck in a place we can't get out. You are the Redeemer, Lord, and we know, as Job knew, we know our Redeemer lives. But God, I am praying that You move that knowledge out of our heads and get it into our hearts where it belongs. That we would be just head over heels in love with Jesus. That we would be people who think about You all the time and who are, who are just hungering to be in a relationship with You. To live out life, real life, every day with a real Savior who we know really saves us. And this is what we need. And as we pray even this morning, if there's anyone among us, any of you who you've never really repented, you've you've maybe turned away from sin, but never turned to Jesus, would you pray this prayer to the Father? Give your life to Him this morning. Just say, Lord, I repent. I repent. Not from the old things. I repent to You. Because I want You in my life, Jesus. I want to live for You and with You. I want to be saved by You. And I repent today. I pray I might be able to walk with You from this day forward, not on my power, but on Yours. Lord, draw me in, pick me up, carry me. I repent in the name of Jesus
1: Christ, my Lord and Savior. Amen.